I've been known to uh, be too anxious to preach sometimes and not give people the opportunity to do what they're supposed to do. Uh, do you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are in desperate need of your word, for your word is food to our souls. Your word is light to those of us who travel in a very dark world. Your word is sharp, it penetrates deep down into the inner thoughts and inner motivations of our hearts. Your word is life-giving. Your word is indeed your message to us. It is you speaking. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God breathed. So, Father, we pray that your word would have its way among us, that you would accomplish what you desire to see accomplished in our hearts today, and that our understanding of your purposes and your agenda for our own church family will be more clear to us and that we'll be more encouraged to understand what part Christ plays in that and that you're at work in our midst to bring these things about. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After years of living in a city where the walls were broken down, where there was no defense against the enemies surrounding them, living in ruins, the citizens of Jerusalem finally had a reason to rejoice. A project that had been started to rebuild these broken down walls was more than halfway completed. And this man who came from far away in Persia by the name of Nehemiah, a fellow Jew, he came and he now was able to see what he was always longing to see, and that was reinforced walls and gates that are being reconstructed and hopeful new beginnings now among the people of God in the city of David. But we come to a fifth chapter now in the book of Nehemiah. You might want to find your way there. Chapter 5, page 583 in your pew Bible. In the fifth chapter, we realize that there's another wall that captures Nehemiah's attention. It was not a wall made of stones. It was not a wall that required mortar and, and uh, hammers and heavy lifting. But it was a wall that needed to be dismantled, not built. As a matter of fact, it's an invisible wall that had been built between two groups within the body of God's people there, among the impoverished people who were helping to rebuild the wall and those who were the well-to-do, the rich, and those who were in power. Look in chapter 5, in verse 1, how it's introduced to us. Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. A number of people at this point in this progress of rebuilding a literal stone wall around the city, they spoke up and they brought to the attention and brought to light a problem that had been brewing for a while. They raised a cry of protest. Now I want to be clear at this point, I want you to understand that this was not a selfish complaint. There are many people who offer complaints and some of us hear those complaints and we're like, oh, 
It's not the kind of complaint that is uh, really focused on what God, a concern that God would have about something that's unjust. It's mostly a complaint that means things are not going my way. But that's not this kind of selfish complaint. These people are not bringing forward to Nehemiah a concern about too much construction noise. Or they're bringing forward to him a complaint about, listen, there's so much construction litter all around the place I live. Give me a break. You know, I can't take it anymore. He's not listing those kind of complaints. They are vocalizing deep concerns about injustices that they had been enduring, which needed to be addressed. And they brought them out into the open. They said the sad reality, in a sense, was what they spoke about was the fact that there's this indifference that has been going on for weeks and weeks now. This lack of compassion for one another was destroying the unity that was supposed to be in, in, in place here among the people who were working together, among the people of God, in rebuilding these walls. I'd like to just suggest to you that the changes that God longs to make among his people often will never be made and won't likely ever be made apart from the courageous cries of people who are oppressed or downtrodden. I cannot help but admire these individuals for speaking up because it took guts. Think about it. They courageously confronted the members of this society, the members of this group, who were the people with the connections, the people with the power, the people with the clout, the people who were the head honchos, in a sense. And they brought to light that they were facing a plight that involved wrongdoing from a number of people who were exploiting them. And these allegations of wrongdoing, no matter how widespread, no matter how scandalous, they obviously needed to be brought to light. To somehow go forward and not deal with this particular problem, to somehow sort of imagine that these things were not in place and to somehow move ahead and finish the project and, and, and then go back and go back to normal life, we need to be careful here and notice that the scriptures clearly are encouraging. We've got to deal with things that are not lined up right. We've got to take the time to deal with them. Now, in saying that, I would also remind us that there are various warnings in Scripture as to what's the proper way to do that. And we understand that there are times when things need to be brought forward with those in leadership. It says in 1 Timothy 5 that you're not to receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, that there are some, some guidelines that need to be followed. We don't just want to deal with hearsay. We don't want to just bring up charges against people and and, uh, and, and they're not substantiated in some level, but clearly the concerns need to be made known. And so sure enough, they spoke up. Their cries were finally heard. And Nehemiah noticed that this is not just a minor difference of opinions among several people who are disgruntled. Well, what was the problem? What needed to be addressed? Follow along as we read verses 2 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. 
Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Now, various commentators have tried to summarize what is really going on here, and I would suggest a couple of these things are at least indicated by these statements. It would seem to, to be that because of all the work being done on the wall, some people had been urged to leave behind the work in the fields and to no longer harvest and bring in the crops, but they were offering their help to get this wall rebuilt. And so therefore, less number of hands getting the work done means that the the amount of, of food was in a short supply. The harvests were decreasing. And on top of that, for some reason, they had not been receiving rain. And so therefore, the, 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 what they had was no longer producing like it once had in famine conditions. And these various bad harvests has caused some people to be in desperate measures. Now, you've got to understand their society and their economic um, uh, processes we're all revolving around growing of food, growing of agricultural uh, endeavors. If you have a good harvest, then we have a good, in a sense, good stock market uh, that has gone up, a bear market, a bull market, excuse me. Uh, and, but what happens here is that they're having a desperate time and they've mortgaged now their land in order to have enough resources to meet their financial needs, which is a terrible thing to do when you're a farmer. Uh, these desperate people then are offered loans, which are then going to be charged a very high rate of interest on these loans. Clearly, there's people taking advantage of those who are in this desperate plight. And they're left with no money now. They can't buy seed corn for next year and for producing of further plantings in the future. And you add to that taxation, which says we're going to take whatever little you have, we're going to now require you to pay those taxes with various forms of oil or uh, olive oil or, or various uh, grains that you have to give over to the government. And you're going to pay these exorbitant interest rates and these loans. It's pushing people to take desperate measures, including selling their children into slavery, which is a way of saying, my child will work for you in exchange, in a sense, to pay a debt I owe you. That's a crushing financial condition. Can you imagine what you would be like if you were in that situation? What kind of strong feelings of resentment that you must have felt if you're in the position of seeing your own children be given over to somebody to help pay a debt that you can't pay and feel so powerless? Meanwhile, these people are super well off, having no compassion toward you at all, taking advantage of you, charging you crazy interest rates. Up to, so I read somewhere, they charged up to 50% interest rates. Plain and simple. What's the problem here? Point number one. The problem that was brought to light was a crisis of exploitation. Certain ones were exploiting the powerless, the weak, the hardworking farmers who had very little to their name. And the sad thing was, it was some of God's people who were exploiting other desperate, impoverished people of God. 
So Nehemiah was obviously not just concerned about seeing the wall of stones be rebuilt. He was deeply concerned and deeply troubled about the rebuilding of God's community. To see the, the, the community sense and unity among his own people be rebuilt. And so he took several steps to create a culture of caring. What are some of those steps? Well, first of all, I would notice that he assessed the situation from God's perspective. And I would suggest it is true that if we're going to find any kind of culture of caring, we have to find a reason as to why are we to care for each other. Why not live just for yourself? Why not just everybody take care of their own issues, their own problems? Why do we need to be so concerned about other people? Well, you have to back up and say the reason why is because we understand that God made everyone. Everyone bears the image of the Creator. And a culture of caring must begin with God. Because God himself is a God of compassion. God himself is a God who's full of mercy. His heart is moved toward those who find themselves in desperate plights. He's not indifferent to the cries of the weak and the poor and the helpless. And I would just, again, give you a sampling of these verses. I, there are many others I could add to what I'm going to read to you, but I've listed some of them in your notes. But there's no shortage of scriptural affirmations that describe God's concern for those who are being exploited. Listen to Proverbs 14:31. God, I'm sorry, the person who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. But the person who honors God has mercy on the needy. So, if I'm honoring to God, then I'm going to be responding to those who are needy around me appropriately. Moses, of course, had taught the children of Israel God's perspective on charging this exorbitant interest rate on, and the loans on the desperate poor among the Israelites. He had given clear guidelines, and he says this in Exodus 22. He says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. So if there's someone among you who is in need, you temporarily they need somebody to tie them over, you can loan the money, but you shouldn't charge them any interest if they're a fellow Israelite. Leviticus chapter 25, further instruction. Again, all found in the Torah. Now in a case, sorry, now in case a countryman of yours becomes poor, and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live without you. Sorry, that he may live with you. In other words, you might stay in the community here with you. Do not take usurious interest, in other words, excessive interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. And finally, I would just read from Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 to 20. You shall not charge interest to any of your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord may bless you in all that you undertake. So if that's the backdrop, that's the basic assumption of God's perspective on the situation at hand, it's clear that once Nehemiah had begun to hear what they were saying and understand what had been going on, 
He then reacted in verses 6 and 7. And I don't think his reaction can be understood apart from what he must have known and many others who were familiar with the teachings of the Torah. Look at his reaction there in verses 6 and 7. Nehemiah writes, Then I was not just angry. He said, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And then the interesting phrase, and I consulted with myself. May I just pause for a moment and say, that is a lot of wisdom right there. Because when we have an emotional reaction to something and we sense that there's an outrage, there's something wrong, there's something that's clearly out of line here, and that evokes from us this strong uh, uh, welling up within us of this so uh, ticked off about it. It's wrong. It's wise at that moment to then give some thought and contemplate what is the right way now to respond further in light of this situation. Now, my question I ask uh, as myself, and I read that text, and he, he responds with anger, and I said, why is he angry? Is he angry because he's frustrated that now this is going to slow the process and the progress of this rebuilding of the stone walls around the, the perimeter of the city? Is that why he's really angry? Clearly not, because Nehemiah, if you look at what he's going to do moving forward here in the text, you begin to understand that he's reacting because he understands God's perspective. He understands how this is clearly out of line with what God has uh, required his people to do, his, God's perspective on the matter. He knew full well that this was wrong, it was indefensible. He was angered by the cold-heartedness of those who were well off, having no concern and no real evidence of any kind of compassion for those who, who similarly, uh, as other members of the uh, family of God among them, they were struggling to survive. And yet they just kept doing what they wanted to do regarding the financial obligations that they've labored, uh, placed upon those who were weak. And Nehemiah knew that God was displeased with these developments. And perhaps he was also angered over the fact that maybe he had been a little too preoccupied with getting this project moving forward and getting things to be finally showing some progress of seeing the walls rebuilt, that he had somehow overlooked the plight of the poor among them. And that somehow he had become a little desensitized to the great concerns that they faced. It's unclear exactly why he was angry, but clearly it is appropriate to have righteous anger when we see and observe and know of something that offends God. But I would suggest to you just having an emotional response is not enough. That it should also engage a time of intellectual reflection. We need to take time to think and process and say to ourselves, what not only is wrong about this, but what needs to be done about it? What do we, can we do to make things situation to turn it into a new direction and to make things more appropriate in light of what we currently are facing? And then, not only to have a time of reflection, but then what will I do about it? And what will actually begin to take some action in moving in a new direction? So let's look at then, uh, the first one was that he uh, reacted out of his own a sense of understanding God's perspective. He assessed the situation from God's perspective. But secondly, we notice that he took proper steps to make right what was wrong. Verses 6 to 13 in chapter 5. 
Not only did he, was he angry, uh, he consulted with himself, verse 7, and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? In other words, he raised a question that they couldn't answer, and they were silent. They could not find a word to say. Verse 9. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let us leave off this usury. The, the exorbitant high interest rates. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive gardens, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain and the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Verse 12, and then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus, they, even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to this promise. Again, I would say to you, if Nehemiah had done nothing about the problem. If he had seen the scandal, it has now become revealed and clearly identified. If he had just compromised the clear standards of God, he would have compromised his moral authority. If he overreacted and he overzealously attacked these nobles and these wealthy individuals, he would have lost the opportunity to probably put things in proper order. But notice what he did. He spoke to the rich officials and nobles privately first. He confronted them regarding these accusations, and he called for a public airing of the issues. He was hoping to secure public promises from the offenders that they would make these things right. And he wanted those who had been sinned against to know that the situation was going to be corrected. And so he insisted that these wealthy officials return what they had taken by exploitation, and rather than just making of empty promises, he put in place accountability. He put in place transparency. And he sought to make right the wrongs that had occurred. And he called God to be a witness to all of these promises. Verse 13. He basically says, listen, where there is wrong, you must make it right. And, and if you don't, then we're going to hold you. God's going to hold you to this. We got witnesses to verify what you're saying. We got some accountability here. We're going to try to move forward in that kind of situation. I find this interesting because a leader of a covenant community was calling on the members of that covenant community to stop oppressing members of a covenant community under the understanding that they share together a covenant relationship with their God. He had a moral framework that gave him, in a sense, the right to move ahead, holding people accountable, 
calling people to a standard, asking people to repent and do what the right thing was, to put things back and make sure that they were now done, handled correctly. He calls them to this standard that they all shared together as members of a covenant community. I find it interesting in today's world that people look around and they see things that they consider to be wrong and they become outraged. But they don't share a sense of a moral structure, a moral agreement of what's right and wrong. What can be thought of as an outrage to some people is merely a person's preference or a large group of people have shared together saying, well, this is just what we do and this is what we think is right. And, and therefore, as a collective group of people, we ourselves are going to condemn this, that, and the other. But they have no objective sense of what's right and wrong. It's merely what you prefer and what you think works best for the largest number of people. So my question for some of us today is, are you a member of a covenant community? You see, there is a new covenant that Jesus made and that those who enter into a covenant relationship with him by faith and they share in what he has done for them. He who was rich became poor, not in terms of monetary issues, but in terms of his rich in righteousness, rich in all the blessings and wealth of privilege that he enjoyed. He laid it all aside. He, he dealt with our obligations and our debts, taking them upon himself, and his wealth and all of his righteousness is given to us by faith. And when we enter into that covenant relationship with Christ by faith, we do so with a sense of a moral framework that seeks to try to honor the one who has created this kind of uh, covenant community among us. And therefore, the moral authority that Nehemiah carries out here only makes sense within that kind of constraint, that kind of construct. I find that many times today's world, if you don't acknowledge the true and living God, you have no moral reference point other than yourself. There is no absolute moral point. And therefore, what you're arguing is, is you're arguing from your own preferences, whatever you think makes sense to you, but there is no objective outside reference point, morally speaking. But we see these things being played out again and again. For example, in the New Testament, I would just remind you that there are examples within the early church that they also expressed similar kinds of issues and problems about the, the disunity among them and the divisive conditions that pulled them apart. And it required some intervention. Because why? Because they're honoring the covenant that God has made through his son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you know in Acts chapter 6, there were some Greek-speaking Jews, people whose background is not growing up speaking Hebrew, but they are coming from a society where they spoke Greek. And uh, as Jews, they were added to the church probably on the day of Pentecost. So they've come in sort of as newcomers into this new movement of Christians. And here they are with some people who are from out of town, people who live far away. They're now gathered, staying here, living in Jerusalem, and they have tremendous financial needs. They've given up a lot to stay here, a part of this new movement. And some of them have widows who have no social security. They have nobody supporting them financially. And the church had set up a means by which they were offering to address some of the needs of these widows among the Greek-speaking Jews. And it became known that they felt like they weren't getting enough. They weren't getting enough of the leftover foods or whatever was being distributed. They feel like they were getting shortchanged a little bit. And so the early church leaders heard about that 
And perhaps it was because of a problem with language. There could have been an issue of people not understanding each other, perhaps. But whatever the reason was, they addressed it by doing what? The church said, let's set up seven different individuals who have a Greek-speaking background, and let's let these seven men who are respectable people take charge of this particular issue, make sure that the food is being distributed correctly, and resolve that particular problem. Why? Because we want to show respect and care and love for all the members of this community and not leave people out. And so the church did respond in that way. Another problem what the Apostle Paul ran into was found in the church of Corinth. It was really quite a sad scene. What you had in Corinth, and Paul is so upset about it in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he writes to them and confronts them about it, is because they're gathered together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's a good thing. And in their celebration of the Lord's Supper, they used to have a full meal as a part of that particular uh, observance because they usually met in people's homes. And so here they are gathering together to celebrate their unity as brothers and sisters in Christ and what they share together and what Christ has done. And some well-to-do, upper society, if you will, uh, rich members of the church refused to wait for everyone to get there. And so they came in and they brought all their fine, exquisitely prepared food. They brought in lots of uh, plentiful uh, top-grade wine that they were going to enjoy with their meal. And they began to eat the fancy food and to drink and drink and drink and have a little bit more and a little bit more wine. Next thing you know, they're getting drunk. They're feasting. They're having a great old time. They're probably laughing and enjoying the time together. Meanwhile, there were members of the church who were probably servants in many other households and they've been delayed and they finally get there and they don't have anything to eat. And there's nothing that's been saved for them. There's nothing to share with them. Everything's been consumed. People are half drunk. And Paul is rebuking them as they gather now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he says, don't you realize that some of you have already experienced within this church family the discipline of God? Some of you are weak. Some of you are sick. Some people have even died because of this disregard for each other. And as they come together, there's not a sense of proper respect, a proper sense of honoring the unity that exists among each other and showing each other is a valuable member of this particular church family. So Paul says in verse 33 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, wait for each other. Wait until everybody gets there before you start consuming and thinking only about yourself. So Nehemiah helps us remember, along with Paul and the members of the early church, it's important that we take steps to indicate that we are members of a covenant community with the understanding of what God has established here that we understand and try to honor his perspective on these situations. And that means sometimes that we have to call for changes in dealing with each other in ways that honor what God has indeed put in place. Notice also in another interesting point in verses 14 to 19. This is quite interesting as Nehemiah talks about his own personal response to this. First, his response was to deal with other leaders, calling them to repent. And then 14 to the end of the chapter. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes for 12 years, Neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 
40 shekels of silver. Even the, their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. And yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. I've tried to summarize what he, I believe, was trying to do in this last section by suggesting that he was trying to restore trust and integrity by adopting honorable standards in the fear of God. Restoring trust and integrity by adopting honorable standards in the fear of God. Here is Nehemiah in this awkward position because he is a well-to-do member of the society. He was rather rich, obviously. If he was offering and butchering, as he says there in verse 18, uh, he was saying each day they prepared an ox. Well, you start adding that up over a period of year. You're talking for 12 years. I mean, that's, that's a huge number of oxen, and that represents tremendous wealth in that society. And some people claim as Christians, well, it's not right for people to be rich. There's something immoral about that. I would suggest that's not the point of this text at all. What it's saying is that how does one handle one's wealth is the real issue. The real issue is what he tries to say here is that as a person who was well-to-do, he was rightfully able to extract payment to him that was owed to him as a representative, as a governor. But he says, I'm not going to require that. I'm not going to make people keep paying these kind of taxes. I'm going to skip all that. And I'm going to try to follow ethical standards that will help people understand I'm trying to follow the standards of God, not just trying to enrich my own life. And so he took steps to make clear that he was unquestionably a man of integrity and a man of honor. For the sake of God and for the honor, reputation, and the good of his fellow Jews and the people of God, he says, I'm going to take these steps because I'm not in this for myself. Verses 14 and 19, he comments on the steps that he implemented to avoid suspicion, to gain the trust of those that he was privileged to lead. He elected to forego owning all this extra land that was rightfully his. He forego the idea of collecting all this extra food that was provided to him by the king. He chose to share what he had with all these people gathered at his table all the time. He's trying to, again, uh, utilize his resources in ways of trying to help other people. Rather than creating heavier burdens on his own people, he's trying to improve the welfare of others. Nehemiah was not just trying to gain popularity and political loyalty. He was motivated by the grace of God and the honor of God. And some people live for the here and now. And they look at people and other opportunities and say, I'm looking to gain for myself opportunities to enrich myself, even if it doesn't help other people. They only think primarily of themselves. And Nehemiah is trying to say, no, I reject that approach in terms of how I steward the things that God has entrusted to me. And those who truly fear God adopt standards that are much higher than man's standards. 
See, Nehemiah's fear of God resulted in a life that celebrated the value of every member of that community. He celebrated the fact that there are those who are the hardworking farmers are just as valuable as the people who are bringing the government officials who have all the sophisticated background and understanding and, and they're able to do all these things with great resources. He says, every person has value in the family of God. And his goal there was that each person be treated with dignity and honor. Not just the people who were the well-connected, not just the people who were well-educated, not just the people who were good-looking, not just the people who were well-to-do and had lots of wealth, but everyone was to be recognized as honorable members of the family of God. Those poor citizens had been taken advantage of by the people who were supposed to be looking out for them. And part of God's agenda for his people was to address sometimes these relational barriers that over the years had become a part of that culture. And so as a godly leader, Nehemiah listened to the outcry. He confronted those who needed to be confronted, trying to represent the interests and concerns and position of God, perspective of God, people who had trampled the rights and the interests of those who were weak. And his heart was filled with compassion to the point where he says, I want to take steps of whatever I can do to ensure that other people understand that we all care for each other. So as I move forward on this text, I asked myself again, how does it look in our, in our church family of having a heart of compassion for each other, each other who tend to be different from each other? What kind of compassionate heart do we have toward the elderly, those who are the older members of our flock here? Do we ever take our time to ask them how they're doing? Do we ever reach out to them? Do we ever offer our assistance to them in ways that are appropriate? Expressing respect to them, slowing down, trying to speak to them in a very uh, gentle fashion instead of being rush, rush, rush and quickly moving past them? Do we have a heart of compassion for our young people, taking time to understand their world, their issues, their challenges, offering to express an interest in them, praying for them, learning their names, finding out what their world is like? How about the single adults among us? whose world is maybe different from those of us who are married or those of us who have children or things like that. The single person who, for various reasons, finds themselves dealing with a lot of the challenges of being alone. How do we show a heart of compassion for people who have different ethnic backgrounds, who come from completely different uh, earlier years than our years, and so we don't have a lot of common in those ways, and yet they're much different. How do we have a heart of compassion for them? and even those who are with a lot less resources than we have, how do we relate to them? How do we show the compassion of God? One of the ways, obviously, I'm convinced is that we have to keep our focus on the gospel, remembering that what has God done toward us? We who were his enemies, we who had nothing to offer him at all, who had nothing but obligations that we owed to him. We owed him mega bucks, in a sense, uh, mega debt, for our sins and for our offenses and for the ways in which we have fallen short of his laws. And what does he do? He takes those upon himself in his person of son, Jesus Christ, and gives us the opposite of what we deserve. He gives us grace, gives us forgiveness. He gives us someone who pays the debt for us. And it is Jesus who creates a community of people who share in common this sense of understanding grace. A grace that says, you who don't deserve to be a part of this group, you're welcomed into my family. 
And one of the things that Jesus did in the temple at the time when Jesus was uh, doing his earthly ministry, there were lots of signs in the temple complex that said, if you are not this kind of person, you can't go any further. You have to stay right here. You're an outsider. You can't go further in. And if you read Ephesians chapter 3, you begin to understand that Jesus said it's time to take those signs down. The people who were with all the differences and all the barriers of trying to collect people who are different and make them into one family, he says, now we all can share together in the family of God because he's knocked down those barriers. There's a sense in which we are one family and we celebrate that by taking steps to address those issues that have showed disrespect and stepping on the rights of others and, and sinning against them and also in calling us to create and sustain and create a culture in which we truly care. And when that's going on, and we see the culture of caring, the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ because they sense there's a real love that only he can create. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that we who are undeserving, and unqualified and highly indebted to you. How we thank you that your heart of compassion did not just turn away from us and kick us to the curb. We thank you that you inclined yourself to rescue us, to come to our aid, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, I just thank you for, again, the, the wonders of your dealing with us through Jesus Christ, full of grace and full of mercy. And Father, I pray that we might, as we think of the gospel and, re, and celebrate it and rehearse it again and again in our hearts and minds, if there's someone here today, Lord, who has never embraced the covenant that was made for them by Jesus Christ, I pray that they would turn to Christ turning away from themselves, away from their sin, away from their own attempts to try to somehow make themselves better and come to you through Jesus Christ, claiming him and what he's done on their behalf. And Father, I pray that you would help all of us who have received your grace and mercy, that you might continually make us into people who are agents of grace and mercy with hearts that do have compassion for each other, with hearts that are able to receive and accept each other, Lord, even though our differences are great and many, and that there is always pressures to pull apart the bonds that we share together. We pray that you might, Father, help us to celebrate the new covenant by also celebrating the fact that we share as a covenant community here that we are true members of each other and have hearts that care about each other, no matter what, what our background is, what our uh, bank account, how much, how large or how small it is, no matter what our educational level is, no matter, Lord, what our appearance may be or our background, we pray that we might be a people who show the world a small glimpse of the glories of your grace and mercy at operate, operating here among ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.